Welcome back, listeners, to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London. And we're going to be doing something a little different this time. Instead, three episodes will be devoted to a shorter, lighter paper by Freud, all connected to aesthetics, and this series will be titled Summer Shorts. And today's first paper will be Creative Writers and Daydreaming, which is a brief essay from 1908. Can I give? Can you give us a bit of context, Tom? And can you pick out some of those key reference points that Freud turns to in this paper? Sure. Yeah. Um. So as you mentioned, Jamie, Creative Writers and Daydreaming was published in 1908. So it's a relatively early text, particularly compared to the works that we've discussed previously on Freud and Focus. So in 1905, Freud had published a book entitled Jokes and Their Relation to the Unconscious which was really his first foray into the field of aesthetics. It's a work that is vital for an understanding of how we gain pleasure from aesthetic experience, um, from a psychoanalytic point of view, that is. And we'll be referring to the joke book, as it's known, on occasion throughout this series. So Freud doesn't begin to think about aesthetics in the grand German tradition, handed down from Baumgarten through Kant to Hegel but from the more commonplace and often overlooked phenomenon of joking. It's reminiscent, really, of his move to look for the royal road to the unconscious in the commonplace activity of dreaming in the interpretation of dreams, or indeed in the psychopathologies of everyday life. It's clearly a deliberate move from Freud, in that his thinking is turned away from the kind of external speculative systems of metaphysics and towards the internal psychical mechanisms that we all share. This project was defined a few years earlier in the psychopathology of everyday life as that of turning metaphysics into metapsychology. A year before publishing Creative Writers and Daydreaming, Freud wrote his first extended discussion of a work of literature. And again, it's not an analysis of one of the great works of literature from, say, Shakespeare or Goethe, but a book that's relatively obscure, really, by Wilhelm Jensen um, called Gradiva, a Pompeian, a Pompeian fantasy. Freud found this work fascinating because it not only seemed to offer a novelistic complement to psychoanalytic theory, but it was also set in Pompeii, and it allowed Freud to indulge his passion for archaeology. Jensen's book has fallen into obscurity now, and it's only really discussed with reference to Freud's brilliant analysis. Prior to the publication of Creative Writers and Daydreaming, Freud had also written a short paper entitled Psychopathic Characters on the Stage, which was not published until after his death, and is an extremely insightful coupling of Aristotle's theory of catharsis and psychoanalytic analysis applied to tragic drama. So clearly Freud was much occupied by literature and creativity at this point. Mm -hmm. There's some great references there. So Freud sets out to shed light on the creative processes, which he links to activity in childhood. Tom, can you describe this connection that he's making? 
Well, Freud begins by emphasising the kind of mystery surrounding the creative process. As amateurs, we'd love to know how creative writing works, but it's a subject that seems impossible to get at, according to Freud. If we approach creative writers themselves, they're often at a loss to give us an explanation. And on the odd occasion that we are offered an explanation from a creative writer, it proves to be unsatisfactory. So met with this seemingly insurmountable obstacle, Freud deploys the logic of analogy. If we can't get at the answer directly, let's look for a similar activity in a different field, and perhaps we can arrive at our destination by an alternative route. Freud suggests that we can find an analogue to the workings of the creative writer by looking at a child at play. He writes the following. Should we not look for the first traces of imaginative activity as early as childhood? The child's best loved and most intense occupation is with his play or games. Might we not say that every child at play behaves like a creative writer, in that he creates a world of his own, or rather, rearranges the things of the world in a new way which pleases him? The recourse to analogy is one that's familiar for Freud. So in an earlier paper entitled The Etiology of Hysteria, which was published in 1896, he had compared the work of the psychoanalyst to that of an archaeologist, digging into the patient's unconscious. This particular analogy was one that remained operative for Freud throughout his career and had its fullest elaboration in the first chapter of Civilization and Its Discontents, which you'll remember we looked at in our last series of Freud in Focus. What this analogy suggests is that rather than the creative writer being kind of elevated to the level of the divine, as was the case in German Romanticism, where the artist operated as a, as a hierophant, here he is demoted or perhaps even relegated, to the level of the child. However, this demotion is not as dramatic as it first appears, because for Freud, the child plays with a seriousness and an intensity, so the activity is not at all frivolous. So whereas we might think of playing as the opposite of that which is serious, for the child, play is in fact the opposite of reality. The child distinguishes the world of play from reality, but he still cathects a great deal of emotion in play and likes to make links between his play and the reality that he experiences. In describing play as a serious matter, Freud is drawing on a tradition that can be traced back to Schiller's notion of play in The Aesthetic Education of Mankind as a distinctively human capability that is crucial for the education of society. The Spieltrieb, or play drive, brings together the impulses towards form, on the one hand, 
and matter on the other. So for Schiller, it is through play that humanity reaches its highest potential. We might also look forward from Freud to the work of Winnicott here in his famous text, Playing with Reality. The link between art and play is further emphasised by Freud etymologically. So the German word for tragedy is Trauerspiel, or mourning play. A comedy is known as Lustspiel. We also have this in English, of course. You know, we go to see a play, don't we, when we go to the theatre. Or the dramatist personae are known as players, etc. So Freud writes this. The creative writer does the same as the child at play. He creates a world of fantasy which he takes very seriously. That is, he invests it with large amounts of emotion while separating it sharply from reality. Freud goes on to suggest that when we are overburdened with the seriousness of life as adults, we can achieve the high yield of pleasure available from humour by collapsing the separation of play and reality and equating our present serious situation with our previous childhood games. I'm not going to discuss humour any further at this point though, as it will be the subject of our next episode. So just a little teaser for you there. Now, when the child grows up to become an adult, that play then turns into fantasy, which, as Freud says, is giving up the link between real objects. How does Freud's argument then develop from that point? Well, what Freud emphasises here, which is in fact a key principle of psychical functioning and of human life in general, is that we never really give things up particularly infantile pleasures that we are supposed to have grown out of. We only exchange one thing for another, and thus we gain substitutive satisfactions. So when the child develops into an adult, instead of playing, he now fantasises. What was public in childhood becomes private in adulthood. The adult builds castles in the sky, in Freud's words. But this activity is accompanied by a feeling of shame. So we'd rather admit to our misdeeds than our fantasies. I think you get a really powerful example of this in one of the kind of higher children's stories. The Winnie the Pooh books by A.A. A. Milne. The books ostensibly chart the relationships between the author's son, Christopher Robin, and his toy animals, who take on human characteristics. His favourite toy animal is, of course, Winnie the Pooh. At the conclusion of the final novel in the series, The House at Pooh Corner, Christopher Robin takes Winnie the Pooh to an enchanted place in the Hundred Acre Wood and asks his favourite toy not to forget about him when he grows older. He effectively takes leave of his childhood. He has to say goodbye to Winnie the Pooh because, in Christopher Robin's words, they don't let you do nothing when you are older. 
play has then lost its seriousness, you see. It has become nothing, and it's something that has to be given up. It's an incredibly evocative description, I think, of the trauma of giving up one's childhood. But of course, in the novel, that's not quite the end. The final lines of the book read as follows. So they went off together, but wherever they go, and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on the top of the forest, a little boy and his bear will always be playing. It's a kind of apotheosis really, isn't it? I mean, the, the enchanted place becomes internalised. Play becomes fantasy. And the writer achieves the internal resources with which to create. But the process, like any rite of passage, is a painful one, which explains the feeling of nostalgia, I think, that it produces in us reading it now as adults. Freud goes on to state that the play of children, just like the fantasies of adults, are conditioned by wishes. Children play at being grown up, don't they? Because they're continually wishing to be grown up and big. But when we do grow up, we become ashamed of the wishes that underpin our fantasies, which are conditioned by erotic and ambitious motives. And therefore we attempt to keep them private. And when these unacceptable wishes demand to be heard, they can produce nervous illness. Happy people never fantasise, according to Freud. At first sight, this seems to be a remarkable statement. But it makes more sense when we consider that fantasies are the expressions of unsatisfied wishes. Every single fantasy, writes Freud, is the fulfilment of a wish, a correction of unsatisfied reality. So fantasy becomes a crucial aspect of the human condition for Freud. Far from being frivolous, it is a sophisticated, flexible and individualised mechanism that develops in order for the individual to come to terms with the strains and hardships of their reality. Fantasies help us to restructure reality in a way that makes it bearable for us, to make it similar to how we would wish it to be. They also help to create a specific temporality that is distinctive to humans as desiring beings. They hover, Freud suggests, between three times. In a characteristically brilliant metaphor, Freud writes that past, present and future are strung together, as it were, on the thread of the wish that runs through them. I didn't want to interrupt your train of thought there, but you were so right. That was so nostalgic. And I was smiling all the way through that Winnie the Pooh <laughs> <Yeah>. analysis, Tom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. So before Freud finishes discussing fantasies, he links them to dreams. And I think at this point, what I'll do is I'll just, I'll read this section directly from the text. Freud says, I cannot pass over the relation of fantasies to dreams. Our dreams at night are nothing else than fantasies like these. 
as we can demonstrate from the interpretation of dreams. Language, in its unrivaled wisdom, long ago decided the question of the essential nature of dreams by giving the name of daydreams to the airy creations of fantasy. If the meaning of our dreams usually remains obscure to us in spite of this pointer, it is because of the circumstance that at night there also arise in us wishes of which we are ashamed. These we must conceal from ourselves, and they have consequently been repressed, pushed into the unconscious. Repressed wishes of this sort and their derivatives are only allowed to come to expression in a very distorted form when scientific work had succeeded in eluc elucidating this factor of dream distortion, it was no longer difficult to recognize that night dreams are wish fulfillments in just the same way as daydreams, the fantasies which we all know so well. This feels like an important point for Freud, really, to, to make, as he, he seems to be linking it up to the interpretation of dreams. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, as we know, psychoanalysis really finds its starting point with Freud's interpretation of dreams. So the construction and analysis of dreams becomes a kind of template for how to think about the unconscious and how to understand human desire. Again, Freud draws on etymology here, doesn't he? As you read, Jamie, language in its unrivaled wisdom long ago decided the essential nature of dreams by giving the name of daydreams to the airy creations of fantasy. The link between dreams and fantasies is not instantly recognisable, as Freud describes, because of the activity of the dream work, which distorts the dream material available to it, in order to help conceal the unconscious repressed wish that lies underneath it. So in Freud's estimation, then, both night dreams and daydreams are at bottom wish fulfilments. Now, halfway through the text, Freud seems to have finally taken up his main subject when he finally states, so much for fantasies, and now for the creative writer. This seems pretty typical of Freud's style, to, to really build and contextualise his main point, wouldn't you say? Well, you know, we've mentioned many times, haven't we, that, that Freud is a great discursive writer. You know, he leads us down some unexpected pathways before we arrive at our final destination. And we often find that we end up somewhere quite surprising. So, yes, yeah, so I would say that this is very typical of Freud, um, but it's also a very deliberate strategy. His discussion of fantasy helps to prepare the ground, really, for his main thesis on the creative process. Now he has established the analogy of fantasy and has gone on to develop a nuanced description of fantasy as being linked to children's play and wish fulfillments. He can now deploy it in order to throw light on the seemingly inaccessible terrain of the creative writer. So despite Freud's discursive style, a great deal has been established in these opening few pages. In fact, there's not really one sentence 
or indeed even one word that is insignificant. Again, this is Freud's greatness as a writer. The analogy allows Freud to demystify the creative writer, though. His analysis will not focus on those most highly esteemed by the cr critics, but on the less pretentious authors of novels, romances and short stories. Again, we see this turning of the tables that we mentioned earlier, concentrating on the so-called lower manifestations of a phenomenon in order to throw light on the higher. Do we also have a very faint echo here, perhaps, of the lines from Virgil's Aeneid that Freud famously used as the epigram of the interpretation of dreams? If I can't stir the heavenly powers, I'll go down into the underworld. What follows is a discussion that links literature to the imaginative experiences that we all share and that we can all relate to. Most stories, according to Freud, are based, at least on some level, on the heroic narrative. The hero goes through a series of trials and tribulations. But when we read about them, we are safe and secure in the feeling that they will not only survive this process, but will also thrive through it. The heroic narrative panders, Freud suggests, to our wounded narcissism. He writes that through this revealing characteristic of an invulnerability, we can immediately recognise his majesty, the ego, the hero alike of every daydream and of every story. These egocentric stories, according to Freud, also offer the ego a respite from the complexity and ambivalence of real life. Not only do all the women fall in love with the hero in the story, but also characters are divided into good and bad, depending on whether they help or hinder the hero throughout the narrative. Aided by this simplification of life, the ego, Freud writes, becomes the hero of the story. Whilst Freud admits that not all imaginative writing can be defined in terms of this simple, egocentric story, he does suggest that this model could be more widely applicable through an uninterrupted series of transitional cases. So in psychological novels, one person is described from within. The author, Freud suggests, sits inside his mind and splits up and personifies all the different aspects of his mind, all the different part egos that then become characters in the story. Zola's late novels are described as eccentric, in which the hero plays only a minor role. And Freud suggests that this characteristic can also be found in everyday life. There are many individuals whose ego contents itself with, in Freud's words, the role of spectator. I'm, I'm just going to return to the text now, as um, Freud begins to address the, the source of creativity for the writer. He says, If our comparison of the imaginative writer with the daydreamer and of poetical creation with the daydream is to be of any value, 
it must, above all, show itself in some way or other fruitful. Let us, for instance, try to apply to these authors' works the thesis we laid down earlier concerning the relation between fantasy and the three periods of time and the wish which runs through them. And, with its help, let us try to st study the connections that exist between the life of the writer and his works. No one has known, as a rule, what expectations to frame in approaching this problem, and often the connection has been thought of in much too simple terms. In the light of the insight we have gained from fantasies, we ought to expect the following state of affairs. A strong experience in the present awakens in the creative writer a memory of an earlier experience, usually belonging to, to his childhood, from which there now proceeds a wish which finds its fulfillment in the creative work. The work itself exhibits elements of the recent provoking occasion, as well as of the old memory. So Freud is presenting his formula here and he admits it's complex and perhaps not very conclusive. Tom, can you unpack it a little? How does this work in reality? Well, this is such a crucial formula that I think it's worth spending a little time on. So the temporality that Freud is formulating here is that of deferred action, which we have discussed previously in this podcast series. So an event in the present awakens a memory from childhood from which there now proceeds a wish. If we follow this carefully, we see that the wish is not connected to the event in the present itself, or indeed to the event from childhood, which had previously lain dormant, or to put it another way, was latent. But it connects to the memory of the event. You'll remember that we've discussed the passage before from Studies in Hysteria, where Freud writes that hysterics fall ill from their reminiscences. Well, this is almost the other side of the coin, isn't it? I mean, we could borrow Freud's formula from that text and say that writers create from their reminiscences. And like the hysteric, the process is driven, or propelled even, by the wish connected to the reminiscence. The past is full of latent possibilities then, waiting and indeed urging to be discovered in the present and cathected with desire in order to reach towards the future. And every act of remembering creates a new constellation of possibilities due to its position on the temporal matrix. What we are left with here is an incredibly rich tapestry, a multi-layered, a multi-directional dynamic inner world in which memory becomes so much more than just remembering. One novel that really does justice to the complexity of this temporality is Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. We immediately think of the Madeleine scene in which the narrator dips a biscuit into his tea as the point where the past is rediscovered. 
But throughout the novel, there are similar moments. The, the sight of a cathedral, the, une the unevenness of a paving stone. All points at which the past comes to meet the present and creates a wish directed towards the future. And it's in the final book, Time Regained, in which the narrator becomes the creative writer, Marcel Proust himself. In light of this, Freud's statement that past, present and future are strung together, as it were, on the thread of the wish that runs through them, really becomes illuminated, I think. The link between wishing and creative writing is not just limited to the individual as well for Freud, but it can also be established at a more collective level. And Freud writes the following. The study of constructions of folk psychology such as these is far from being complete, but it is extremely probable that myths, for example, are whole distorted vestiges of the wishful fantasies of whole nations the secular dreams of youthful humanity. As we reach the end of the text, you'll notice that he finishes with a sort of apology, classic Freud. Um, he says, and I'll just read from the, from the text again. He says, You will say that although I have put the creative writer first in the title of my paper, I have told you far less about him than about fantasies. I'm aware of that, and I must try to excuse it by pointing to the present state of our knowledge. All I have been able to do is to throw out some encouragements and suggestions which, starting from a study of fantasies, lead on to the problem of the writer's choice of his literary material. As for the other problem, by what means the creative writer achieves the emotional effects in us that are aroused by his creations, we have as yet not touched on it at all. But I should like at least to point out to you the path that leads from our discussion of fantasies to the problems of poetical effects. Now what insight does Sigmund Freud offer us? on the impact that creative writing has on the reader at the end of the paper. Well, what Freud discusses in the final paragraph of the paper is in fact the core of his aesthetic theory. Whilst the direct expression of our desires would normally be either undesirable or indeed boring to a reader, the creative writer uses the ars poetica, the techniques of writing, in order to overcome the feeling of repulsion, Freud writes, that would naturally arise. And he's therefore able to provoke its opposite, a great pleasure in the reader. The first technique of these Ars Poetica is fairly obvious. It involves the altering or disguising of the unpleasant egoistic daydreams. The second technique that Freud, and Freud draws this so the second technique, and this draws on Freud's groundbreaking argument in jokes and their relation to the unconscious, is the writer's ability to bribe us by the purely formal, that is, aesthetic yield of pleasure, which he offers in the presentation of his fantasies. So it's the formal qualities of the presentation that Freud regards as specifically aesthetic, 
rather than anything to do with the content of material here. So far this is fairly consistent with the thinking in the field of aesthetics that's handed down from, say, Immanuel Kant. But for Freud, this is a bribe. The writer produces an aesthetic yield of pleasure in the reader, known as an incentive bonus, or for pleasure, in order to allow the possible release of a still greater pleasure arising from deeper psychological forces. So it's not the for pleasure itself which affords the greatest pleasure in the experience of art, but it's the liberation of the tensions in our mind that this for pleasure ushers in, which is the key. Aesthetic for pleasure then is, is a bit like a disguise. It's a kind of charm which keeps us lulled and distracted, whilst the release of shameful content which had been repressed and therefore kept in a state of tension, is allowed to take place. Great art then has a cathartic effect in that allows the purgation of distressing content in the psyche, whilst we are under the spell of aesthetic illusion. It's interesting to remember that Jacob Bernays, uncle of Freud's wife Martha, wrote an extremely influential paper on Aristotle's theory of catharsis in 1857, so just a year after Freud was born. There are also echoes of Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy here, particularly in the way that Greek tragedy was able to express the potential devastation of the Dionysian through the illusion of the Apollonian. Freud leaves us here, in his words, on the threshold of new, interesting and complicated inquiries. And we've also reached the end of our meandering journey through creative writers and daydreaming. As we're going to be discussing humour next time, I, I thought it would probably be quite appropriate to end on a note of humorous reflection, really. I mean, we started by describing this series as being devoted to some of Freud's lighter papers, didn't we? But we, we soon found ourselves kind of knee-deep in dense psychoanalytic theory. Uh, but I guess that's the beauty of Freud the writer, really. <laughs> what a wonderful way to end. I'm looking forward to the next one, really. And as always, thank you to all of you for tuning in. And thank you to my colleague Tom DeRose for a fantastic analysis, as well as to our producer Carolina Heller. I'm Jamie Ruers, and we'll be back in two weeks for On Humour, an essay by Freud from 1927 as part of our summer short series. We'll see you then.